Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 318 The Birth of Insight Meditation. We're joined this week by religious studies professor Eric Braun to discuss his book, The Birth of Insight Meditation, Modern Buddhism, and the Burmese monk Ledi Sayadaw. This is part one of a two part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm joined today on Google Hangout with our guest, um, Eric Braun. Eric, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, chat with us today. Appreciate it. Oh, glad to be here. Yeah, and uh, Eric's joining us from uh, Oklahoma, near Oklahoma City. He is uh, an assistant professor of religious studies at the University of Oklahoma and has just written a very cool book. I've been spending most of the last few days reading through it and really enjoying it. It's called The Birth of Insight, Meditation, Modern Buddhism, and the Burmese monk, Ledi Sayadaw. So um, thank you so much for yeah, coming in and chatting with us a bit about the contents of the book and some of the things that you've been spending, I imagine, years researching. Oh, yes, <laughs> for sure. Cool. Um, so this is really interesting. We, we have so many, um, what I've seen, so many awesome religious studies kind of perspectives on the development of modern Buddhism lately. You know, there was David McMahon's uh, Buddhist Modernism book, and yeah. there's been several things like that coming out. And I feel like it's so enriching to read a different perspective on the traditions, um, especially being a practitioner in them, because it, it just kind of pulls me out of this um, experience of being inside of it and just practicing it and not really thinking about how it came to be the way it is and, you know, and, and questioning some of the frameworks. Uh, it's like, it's like a refreshing thing to like step outside of it for a moment. I, well, it's really great to hear that. And I, I often wonder, because one sometimes wonders whether there will be some sense of destabilization or anxiety around the historical contextualization of these traditions. Though I found mostly talking with people and, and doing some interviews and whatnot that, um, the people are excited about it and they like hearing about it and it doesn't seem to to create any sort of you know mental static around the idea that things may not be exactly as say some traditional teachings say they were um i guess it's all to the good and reflects the sensibility of um many modern practitioners who are already you know really well schooled and the fact that that human beings are working in these systems and you know all sorts of things happen mm. and from what I understand, you're you're kind of a scholar practitioner yourself. You kind of coming at this both from an academic perspective, but then you also have some personal interest in in meditation. Oh yeah, without a doubt. Uh, I mean, I, I I think this is true probably for a lot of Buddhist studies professors. That I mean, why did you begin to study this in the first place? There are people who just intellectually just were kind of captivated by it on a purely sort of, I guess, objective level, so to speak, or intellectual level, let's say. Still personal, but intellectual. But for many people, it's certainly true of me anyway. Um, there was a personal interest in as well that's continued even as I've you know, begun to do the, and, and now I'm well into the academic study of the tradition. Hmm. I find for myself that they, um, that I don't know that I find them in any conflict, I, but they do tend to operate in almost kind of 
different spheres of my brain, so to speak. Uh, and I've always sort of had a sense, almost kind of an, an ethical sense that, you know, I bring my whole intellectual self to the study in a way that, um, that it doesn't try to coordinate with personal belief. It just sort of, I just sort of follow my nose, so to speak, where it goes. But I generally find it enriching if there's that personal interest and, and this intellectual interest. Uh, it's, it's sort of fruitful for sort of pushing you on. Mm. I certainly found this topic that way, you know, because I was interested in meditation. Mm. Okay, very cool. Um, so I wanted to jump into some ideas from the book that you've written. Right. And um, I'll just preface this by saying this, uh, the insight meditation um, movement is one that I'm most familiar with. And so I have so many questions that I wanted to bring, but we'll only get to cover maybe a few of them. Um, but I wanted to kind of keep it isolated to some of the things that seem really central to, um, to, to what you're writing about. So first, it's interesting to see a book with a subtitle of, and the Burmese monk, Ledi Sayadaw. Um, you know, <laughs> right. so, you're, so you're like kind of immediately pointing directly to this character who was a Burmese monastic in the 1800s. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about why this fellow played such an important role in um, the kind of broader thesis that you're exploring about the insight meditation movement and modern Buddhism in general. Sure, yeah. Well, I do see him as a pivotal figure. And in fact, if you begin to scratch the surface, you know, a lot of insight meditation, as probably many people know, um, not all of it, but a great deal, and particularly the dominant forms emerges from Burma. And you begin to scratch the surface there, and, and many people will note the importance of this guy called Lady Seada. Um, but nobody had actually said, why specifically is he important? What, what did he do? Let's talk about it in detail. And that's what interested me, is just initially just to see if there was any there there, so to speak. Um, and, and certainly there was, but, it, but how, how much and, and in what way? And, you know, you mentioned his life. He was born in 1846. He died in 1923. And those dates are actually, if you know something about Burmese history, are quite interesting. It means that roughly half of his life was spent in royal Burma and essentially free Burma prior to the colonial period. And then the second half of his life is during British, the British rule of the entirety of Burma, including the part where he lived and worked most of his life. So he had this life that straddled two two periods and, and a very transformative event where the British took over. Uh, and that essentially the sort of coping that he had to do, the reactions he had to make to this huge transformation of Burmese society when the British came in, fueled the changes that he created in Burmese Buddhism, particularly in regard to meditation. And that really, that's what made him such a pivotal figure. That he was such an active guy in response to these dramatic social changes. That's cool. And I found really interesting too is that you sort of likened him to like kind of like a, a a movie star in Burma. He was like the Brad Pitt of Burmese Buddhism. Like what, what what's up with that? Like how did yeah. that work? Well, his picture is on the cover. I mean, I leave it to people to judge for themselves in respects. But um, well, he was. I mean, they say you know there, there's all sorts of examples, but sometimes you know over ten thousand people reputed, reportedly would would show up. To a, to a Dhamma talk he was giving. Um, he was understood to exercise plague from villages if he came, to bring rain. You know, so this is well beyond any kind of intellectual idea about why he might be important um, at the time. You know, it's said that when he would enter a village sometimes, uh, they, would, they would chant his own poetry back to him in homage. And then when he left, they would, the, the young women of the village would kind of follow him out of the village chanting these same things. I mean, he was tremendously popular 
and and he's you know i don't think in a way where he was interested simply in himself being popular i think you get a sense that he was actually um really quite focused on buddhism and teaching uh but he did self-consciously make himself popular so he was known to write pithy little rhymes um to to engage his audience to tell jokes uh, so when he gave big talks, uh, he really sought to be, in essence, entertaining. And that really made him quite the big guy. The, the, the Brad Pitt quote, in fact, that is in the book where I give that example. That in fact, at the time he was moving around preaching in, all over Burma, other monks were doing it as well. And some of them even went so far, not lady, but some of them went so far as to take stage names, essentially. Uh, and they would take the names of popular actors. So it really would be like a guy now saying, I'm Biku Brad Pitt or I'm Biku George Clooney or whatever. Um, and <laughs> wow. you know, everyone would go, oh, I got to see I got to see that guy. You know, so it, it, that sort of thing went on. There's no doubt. Wow. It's a very so, interesting time in Burmese Buddhism, for sure. That's amazing. So it's kind of like dharmic superstars. Oh, yeah. And even now, you know, if you ride a long overnight bus from, say, Yangon to um Mandalay or to Sagai, one of these towns up in the north, it, it can take all night long. It depends on the bus, but they'll they'll pop on um, CDs or DVDs of monastic preaching, and everyone will watch them. And there's a big call and response going on. You know, it's it's really quite vibrant. Mm, okay, interesting. And um, you know, going from from Lady Sayada to kind of this mass meditation movement. Um, I wondered if we could start with uh, something that I really didn't realize. I mean, I kind of knew it having read some some books on Burmese Buddhism, but I didn't really quite get why this was the case or how this happened. Um, but you write in the book that the isolated instances of meditation as an actual practice suggest that it had not generated widespread interest among monks or the laity prior to the 19th century. So basically, before the 19th century, there just wasn't much reference to or interest in meditation, it sounded like. Um, That's true. Yeah. I mean, well, you want to make one distinction. Is there, there certainly was a significant amount of intellectual interest as a topic of study. So let's, let's look at what the Visuddhimagga has to say. Let's look at these other texts. Um, what is the Abhidhamata Sangaha, this roughly 12th century Sri Lankan text? What, what part of it, what it, what the part of it that has to talk, that talks about meditation, what does it have to say? But when it came to actual practice, um, you know, it's sort of the absence. It's tough to prove an absence, but there, there's very little mention of meditation as an, as a vibrant actual practice going on. It's undoubted that there were monks, particularly ordained people, uh, interested in practicing. Without question, and you have suggestion of that in the in the um, the, record, the historical record itself. But as a widespread practice and as a lay practice, clearly minimal, uh, not extensive at all. And so it's a dramatic change when that blows up, basically in the very early 20th century, and, and maybe let's say even a little bit later than that. In fact, in the really in the 20s and 30s when it really be begins to become widespread. Okay, great. So, so it's there, but it's kind of like in in the caves and in the hills, and kind of being practiced in a way that's not um, by any means the interest of, of of most people. That's right. And part of that was a common conception uh, that it that that meditation that awakening um, wasn't something that was going to be it wasn't possible uh, uh, in this degenerate age. Essentially, uh, you know, there's a common belief in Buddhism that 
well, the classic idea is that Buddhism is going to last 5,000 years. Uh, and so once you get to a certain point in that progression, things have just gone to such pot, forget about it. You know, you're, you can do a sort of, you can have coping mechanisms. You can get good karma and, you know, eventually be reborn at a time of the next Buddha. But as for awakening now, it's not going to happen. That's a very common belief. And so that has to change to make it possible. Not that everybody, you know, as we all know in all societies, even now here in America, people have all sorts of ideas. And even if there's a dominant idea, there's always going to be people who think differently or do differently. Um, so I don't mean to suggest that everybody thought exactly the same and that nobody would meditate with the hope of awakening. But the trend was towards a sense of it being such a difficulty that it was well nigh insurmountable in terms of achieving awakening. But that changes at this time. And Lady is a part of that. Okay. L Lady Sayada, that is. Okay, great. And and you mentioned, uh, I guess he's the king of Burma at the time, uh, Mindon. Uh -huh. you, you mentioned um, that he was kind of influential. He was kind of uh, in reign during Burma when at least there started to be like a kicking up of interest in meditation where monks were starting to teach other monks. Um, and there was this kind of, you, you'd sort of describe what sounds like the initial stirrings of an interest in meditation, but mostly within the monastic community. Um, and this sort of nascent interest in meditation then becomes such um, a massive um, movement among the lay people in Burma. Like what was the kind of transition? It obviously was connected, like you said, to, to the British coming in, but I'm curious if you could say more about that. Sure, sure. Well, you know, the British came in in essentially three stages. They took the, the lowest part of Burma uh, in 1824, the, the middle part um, around about 1852, and then the final part, which would be the entirety of Burma in 1885. Um, and so when Mindon ruled, uh, he, uh, and he ruled up until just a f essentially a few years before the British took over the upper part. He, by the time he's in control, the, the lower half of Burma is lost to the British. Uh, so even though the British wouldn't take the whole shebang, so to speak, until 1885, uh, and Lady was born into that upper part of Burma that was still free and Mindon was ruling that part, they were obviously, they were tremendously aware of the presence of the British and reacting to it. So there was already a sense that these British are coming in. It'd be as if you lived in Michigan, but, you know, everything below the Mason-Dixon line or something was controlled by, I don't know, some other country had been taken over. And you knew that that powerful country might take the rest. Because of that, there was a kind of, well, there was an intense attempt to respond to the challenges of these folks, these, these British who had taken over a good portion of the country. And that led to all sorts of innovations and kind of interesting uh, reactions. So Mindon, he had Burmese turned into Morse code. He had telegraph uh, lines uh, uh, laid. He, he did all sorts of technological things where he attempted to strengthen what was left of free Burma. And at the same time, um, they attempted to collect all of the learning that they could that would help them respond to the challenge of these um, potential would-be conquerors. Uh, and that included turning to the texts and supporting an interest in meditation at the court level and at the sort of, we might say, elite intellectual level. So it wasn't so, there was practice, you're right, beginning, uh, particularly near Mandalay, the capital, in, in this town called Sagain. Um, it was, as you say, limited to a, to a great degree to monastics, to the ordained, uh, and it wasn't spread on a widespread basis, say, among the laity. That argument wasn't being made at that time. But it was beginning, and texts were beginning to be written. And Lady at that time that Mindon had taken, was ruling and was beginning to do these things, 
he was there in Mandalay living in a monastery and seeing all this stuff going on. In fact, he had a relationship with a guy who was a powerful um, court figure named Upoth Line, was this guy's name, who you know had the ear of the king, was in a close relationship with him. Uh, and so Lady saw all this going on, and it was one of the inspirations for him for using meditation as a way to respond to social challenge, because they were already doing it. You know, And you're right, it was already beginning to go on. But then once the British, Mindon dies and his son Thibaut takes over in a very violent transition of power, uh, and the violence of that transition and the difficulties of Burma once Thibaut had taken over, um, really provided the opportunity for, for the British to kind of take the whole thing. British commercial interests in Yang, that were already based in Rangoon, which is what the capital of Burma, which is now called Yangon, and, and is no longer the capital, in fact, after, since a number of years ago, but they down there very much wanted to take the whole country over. This, that was an opportunity with this weak king, Thibaut. They took the whole thing over, and then what led from that was a kind of continuity in certain senses of Lady's behavior. He'd seen the value of meditation as a way to respond, and now he sort of, he took it to the next level, essentially. Uh, under the influence, of course, of lay people who are asking about this, to use meditation as a way, among other ways, uh, not the only way, but uh, as a way to respond to the challenge that these British presented. And I don't want to go on too long, but the last thing to just say is what that challenge constituted essentially, and this is tremendously important to their motivations, it was a challenge to the very existence of Buddhism itself. Because if Buddhism is only going to last for 5,000 years, that, there's no guarantee it's going to make it if you act you know, if you act very badly, if you don't support it, it might die well before that point. And so the great worry among Burmese once the British took over was, there goes the Buddhist tradition. These Christian foreigners are going to, they're basically going to cut it off at the knees and it's going to die very quickly. And so they were scrambling to do everything they could to make sure it lasted as long as possible. Okay. Okay. So was part of trying to have it last as long as possible, was it kind of like distributing the the deep knowledge of, of, of what the texts were pointing to so that, you know, everyone could have kind of their own personal understanding of it. Was it that sort of thing? Yes, to a degree. And, you know, even more though, than at, at a more basic level, one might say than even personal understanding, just everyone acting as a personal repository. So even if you didn't have a great understanding of it, at least if you had it Mm. even literally memorized, sort of just under your control in that regard, you were at least keeping it around because you can actually get a great deal of detail in the classic text, which they know now and they definitely knew then, that points out the fact that the very first thing to go in terms of the disappearance of the Dhamma um, is the most difficult texts, which makes sense, right? The hardest ones to kind of keep your under control. And what are the most difficult? They're the Abhidhamma. And particularly the conditional relations called the Patana, which is the last seventh book of the Abhidhamma. So if you can literally just keep it around, I mean, just around, like in your head and in the text, then at least you, you have this kind of like finger in the dike, so to speak. You know, you know that if that's around, it means that things haven't completely gone to hell. So they there was a great effort to just preserve the teachings. But what built off of that was the idea that that practice as well and actual understanding and actual attainments were another way to not only help Burmese Buddhism as a whole, but then of course to help yourself. Uh, because of course, this there was a there was a deep and profound belief in the value of these teachings anyway. And so certain ladies certainly had that belief as well. Uh, and so the me meditation not only helped preserve the tradition by making people moral, by you know encouraging them to learn the Dhamma, but it also of course just helped people by helping them help themselves spiritually. 
Okay, interesting. And again, there seems to be this theme or like a difference between kind of preserving or memorizing or kind of putting down and, and saving the, the kind of information, like the code of Burmese Buddhism versus the actual kind of practice and attainment thing where you're actually running the code and trying to, you know, kind of have a, of an understanding of it. And it was interesting, I, you kind of pointed out that of the kind of several councils that have happened in the history of, of Buddhism, the fourth council, which was in Sri Lanka, was actually about putting down the teachings, like getting them down because of this fear of it kind of getting uh, lost or the monastic uh, community disappearing or something. Yeah, I mean, there was there have been invasions and the diminution of the monkhood and the sense that if we don't find new ways to preserve it beyond like just keeping it within the memory, you know, within the memory essentially of these individuals, we might lose it. So that's right. It's put down for the first time. The fifth council was actually held during Mindon's reign. It was considered actually uh, in many ways by him and others, the crowning achievement of his whole reign at which lady participated in, as a matter of fact, all sort of formulated under the idea that we're preserving the tradition in case, you know, in case foreigners come in, which they ended up doing. So they carved all of those texts on marble slabs, which you can still see today in Mandalay. They're still, they're still there. Um, so that sort of tradition of preservation just continues. One, one thing I should say though, that is rather different from the modern practice, say in America, we tend to have a, you know, a sense of the letter of the law versus the spirit, so to speak, an idea that, you know, they classically use the images like from Ajahn Chah that, you know, the soup spoon is in the soup, but it never tastes it. You know, I want to, I want to taste it with the idea that one needs to practice to really get the sense of value. It's obviously a longstanding idea in Buddhism, but you have to add a very important qualification that there wasn't this, there hasn't always been the same idea about how learning and even the preservation of text relates to practice. And there was much, there was a much stronger sense then, and one might even argue a much stronger sense now in Burma compared to, say, the States, that learning can can form a natural segue into realization. That there isn't as there isn't as much of a gap or a need to kind of leap over this from from you know sort of intellectual study to practice. That they really form a continuum with one another. Uh, and Lady certainly had that idea. So he first promotes learning, and meditation really, in many ways, builds upon that because they were seen as sort of naturally complementary to one another. Yes, yes. And and you're right, because that notion of, of kind of a, an experiential understanding of something versus a conceptual or theoretical, like that's that's a modern notion anyway, um, right. that, that right. kind of comes out of a c- certain kind of philosophy. Right. Um, so, not, not, to, not to wax too POMO, uh, too postmodern, but in a certain way, it, <laughs> it's almost the old version is almost postmodern in the sense that they did see themselves as very constructed individuals. And so the learning was not just something you kind of put into your head and could do something with if you wanted to. It formed the, in, in many ways, it, it helped constitute who you were. And that's what made practice a kind of natural organic growth out of it. Okay. Maybe to play off, off of what you're just saying um, and start to maybe piece, piece apart some of these different threads. I thought it was also interesting that you pointed out um, in the book that um, a lot of the people who were, say, writing meditation manuals, um, you know, describing how how you how you do this stuff, they were also familiar with Western ideas. You know, like uh, you, you mentioned this Italian anatomy book that that one oh, uh, yeah. teacher kind of pulled from, and he he used the meditations on the body. You know, these traditional kind of reflections on different parts of the body, and he kind of tied that in with the Italian anatomy book and the Western kind of notion of the body and how it's structured. 
but he didn't do it in a way where um, they were shining a light on each other. He was using the anatomy thing to prop up and support um, the Buddhist way of looking at the body and, and the, and the assumptions about what the purpose of that is and why it's useful. So it was like he was using Western knowledge to support and perpetuate the thing that was already important. And that, that sort of was a theme. So it's not postmodern in that sense, that there's a, a kind of coming together of perspectives that are, are kind of consciously reflecting on each other and pointing out each other's shortcomings, but rather it's like, oh, I'm gonna use this in service of the thing that is already true. That's, that's absolutely true. That yes, that's the case. They, the, the truth has been found in its Buddhism. And so when that's actually that guy Upoth line who I mentioned, who was the core okay. figure that lady had exposure to one way lady had exposure to the court of Mindong through. Um, yeah, it's true. You know, he's like, this is what the, they, how they just, uh, this is the example I use in the book. He, uh, Upoth line says, hey, here's what the anatomy, Italian anatomy textbook says about the eyeball. And then he describes a little bit about what the eyeball looks like with fat and tissue and nerves. He's like, here's what the Abhidhamma says. But it's clearly because in the end, the Abhidhamma is as good and, well, in fact, is a more effective description, not only because it's just as accurate in terms of its, uh, I don't know, you know, kind of materialistic description, but because it fits into the framework that leads to awakening. So, uh, but of course, the anatomy textbook in certain senses, well, obviously isn't talking about awakening so to that degree falls short of the value of the other yeah everything gets subsumed within that framework one of the arguments i make that's interesting because that's true of lady as well as you go on and you read some of the things he has to say and he'll use technological examples sometimes uh he'll mention science a little bit um they they had they didn't really have that much trouble kind of finding a way to make sense out of western learning um but they very much contained it within a kind of Buddhist view of the world uh, and always maintain that kind of that kind of outlook on the way the world worked. Yeah. Well, it makes sense given what you're saying about um, wanting to preserve their kind of understanding of, of Buddhism and their understanding of the world um, in the face of all of this disruptive change. Right, right. You know, there's, uh, many scholars will discuss uh, quite rightly that, that at certain moments there's a great deal of anxiety around a, a, a sort of perceived conflict with modernity. So, you know, people from say non-Western countries and they're faced with the challenge um, that's brought to them by Western learning, which is utterly valid and quite true. For instance, the, um, I'm, I'm not pronouncing this right, but the Panadore debates in Sri Lanka where uh, the Christian missionary and the Sri Lankan monk uh, argue with one another over the existence of Mount Meru. You know, where is it? You know, uh, how do you prove that? And it's true. I mean, what do you do if you believe there's this giant mountain sort of at the center of the world, it, you know, it's pretty tough to find. And there's arguments you can make, oh, it's a spiritual mountain, this, that, and the other. But for Lady and a lot of these folks, they just, they didn't have that kind of angst. You know, there was a kind of comfort level <laughs> with their certainty that Buddhism was the kind of final word and, they, yeah. and everything else could fit in it. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, you you gave another interesting example along those lines of, of Letty kind of pointing out the, uh, the way in which Christian um, doctrine kind of doesn't take into account a kind of kind of in this worldly cause and effect, you know, that, that it doesn't. And yet he had no trouble with other supernatural elements um, that were part of the Buddhist worldview and kind of like chanting for, you know, to end plagues and, and things like that. Right. Yeah. Well, that's true. The lady himself would criticize notions of the existence of a, of an all loving, all powerful God and and such things on a, basically on a logical basis, a kind of materialistic, this worldly basis, as you say, 
Um, but that didn't create any problem with the idea of karma and then the idea of like retributive effects and the idea of like spirits and all these other things. So it's a really quite different kind of worldview in that regard, you know, because it, it accepts these larger metaphysical categories of beings and, and entities that they are really quite different from, you know, what we often imagine a modernist view would be. Mm-hmm. That's a big theoretical, but it's a, it's a big theoretical interest in the book. It's not one I hammer home because it's a very abstract thing. And I think it, it comes out for people more clearly in the details. But one thing that's a hot thing in Buddhist studies, of course, that I was quite interested in, in taking part in the conversation about is what does it mean to be modern and Buddhist? Yes. And does it always have to be like a certain way? Uh, you know, and, and so part of the point there is to show, oh, look, there's all sorts of ways that you can be modern and you know, still believe in spirits, still believe that you can banish plague through chanting, you know, do all sorts of things. Yeah, be quite modern. So it's really a quite interesting. Ladies, an example of that, I think quite interesting one. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.